0: This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women Smart Power Podcast. This is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Our topic today is trust in the global nuclear order and my guest is Dr. Heather Williams, Defense Studies lecturer at King's College London in the Center for Science and Security Studies. And thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for the invitation, I'm really happy to be here. We're excited that you're here. The first question to start off with, can you outline what's meant by the global nuclear order and explain why trust is an issue now? Yeah, the global nuclear order,
1: it sounds like this big, vague thing. So I think it's good we try to tie it down. It's really, it's about institutions, treaties, and norms. And probably the biggest and most famous um, aspect of the Global Nuclear Order is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, the NPT, which um, outlines states' responsibilities around nonproliferation, disarmament, and peaceful uses. But the Global Nuclear Order, it's also um, norms, you know, like the nuclear taboo, that you don't use nuclear weapons. Um, There's also a norm of nonproliferation. Uh, that we can, you know, that we live in a world where it's not more proliferated, that there aren't more nuclear weapons than uh, we once thought there would be. So a lot of the order is about predictability and thinking that we have a sense of what is the future of the nuclear world look like. And hopefully from that description, it's clear why trust is really important in this. Um, but, you know, this is probably the one academic-y thing I'll throw in, but I would define trust, it's the expectation a favorable behavior in a mutually vulnerable and reciprocal relationship. And when we think of trust that way, trust is important in the order. But it's also important in arms control agreements. You know, Reagan's trust but verify is the really famous saying. But it's basically saying that the state's in this order, that we expect each other to observe these norms, to live up to agreements, uh, to comply with our treaty obligations. So it's really about that predictability um, and feeling like going forward, there is
0: some stability in, um, in terms of nuclear weapons. But there are concerns now that this trust has been broken, particularly between the United States and Europe. You're based in Europe. You're in London. What might we on this side of the pond be missing in terms of understanding this rift?
1: Um, I'll start with the bad news, and then I'll go to the slightly less bad news. I was going to say, <laughs> is there any good news in this scenario? There's some slightly good news. There's some really good characters who um, are helping to rebuild trust. But first, starting on you know, some of the challenges, I, I would just highlight up front, you know, nuclear issues and even relations with the U.S. are not really the forefront concern in Europe at the moment. Europe has so many other things going on. Brexit, we still don't even know what Brexit means. How do you resolve the Irish border? Um, but, you know, there's rising anti-Semitism across Europe and the far-right movement. So that's really the forefront. But in terms of trust with regards to the U.S., um, you just can't avoid the Trump factor. Um, however bad you think it is, however, you know, however much you think that Europeans distrust Trump, it's worse than, than you can possibly think, than you're, than you're probably thinking. Um How so? Can you... Let's give any examples it's it's to the point of irrationality sometimes where just because Trump if Trump is just associated with a policy it might cause some Europeans to just be dismissive of it rather than engage with the policy on its merits um i would say one example of this was actually the um this year's nuclear posture review the nuclear posture review it's not that different from all previous ones, including the Obama administrations, but a lot of Europeans have just dismissed it off of hand and said, "Oh, but it's Trump's nuclear posture review, therefore it's bad," rather than kind of diving into it. And I think it's understandable. Um, you know, some, to some extent, this is human nature that we just label these things, label countries based on who the leader is. Um, but it also it does it does damage the relationship and it misses a trick. But to the good news. Um, that you know nato's still nato unity is still really strong nato just came out with a really strong communique after the brussels summit um it still m- uphold its nuclear mission and I think another this is where the, the characters really become important is General Mattis. Um, Jim Mattis is so well respected among our allies. And whenever he gives a statement, if he backs up something that really helps to shore up trust for the United States as a whole. So I think those individuals, to some extent, are really the ones who are going to going to help save the relationship.
0: Are there mistakes, or if, or what are the mistakes that the U.S. may be making? Um, and this is not just mistakes that maybe the Trump administration has made, but the Obama administration and back to the Bush administration um, in in terms of dealing with NATO allies around. The issue of of trust in the global nuclear order.
1: I don't know if this is a mistake, but I think that I think that we as the United States, maybe all governments, can be better understanding the domestic pressures on our allies. Um, European governments, you know the, uh, polling has showed that European publics, for the most part, are anti-nuclear. Um, a recent poll by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, for example, uh, there are, there's a really strong anti-nuclear movement in a lot of European countries, it's and it's,
0: Germany, right?
1: Exactly, yeah, um, Germany, um, the Netherlands, uh, even Italy to some extent, and that's a domestic political issue. This isn't just a NATO or a U.S. bilateral issue. Uh, you know, your European politicians, they're not going to gain any votes by coming out in favor of nuclear weapons. They might gain some votes by coming out against them, though. And those internal dynamics and those pressures are something that I think we can try to understand a lot better. It might not change policy, but from what I found engaging with allies, they kind of just want to know that the U.S. is listening. They just want to know that the people in Washington care about their domestic pressures, and that they should listen to the person sitting across from them at the table rather than the president's Twitter account. So that's something I think that, you know, we can try to do a little bit better.
0: I wanted to follow up. You mentioned the resistance to nuclear weapons in Europe, but there has been some talk recently uh, because of the trust issues that perhaps Europe should have um, its own nuclear weapons, or NATO should have its own nuclear weapons. Can you talk more about that? Is it just talk? Is there anything behind the talk where this could actually be something that happens?
1: Uh, So this is, the idea for this really came out of Germany, where it was just a few German politicians, um, I think a, a year and a half ago, mentioned the idea of Germany getting its own nuclear deterrent. Um, and this was in a Financial Times article, and the title was perfect. I think the title was something like Thinking the Unthinkable A Nuclear Germany, because it really, it it is unthinkable. Um, But I'm certainly hearing more Germans and German experts talking about this. Um, The other idea that you hear come up a fair bit is maybe Germany wouldn't get their own nuclear weapons, but maybe there would be a Euro deterrent where European countries would share a nuclear deterrent, which would as this theory goes, be um, provided by the French. Now, if you talk to the French, they're not really on board with this idea. Um, you know, I I think it. I think we should listen to this. It's a signal. It's a symbol of distrust in the United States as a security guarantor. But whether I I don't really think it's going to go anywhere, mainly because the foundations of the global nuclear order, the foundation of nonproliferation, is still really strong. Um, and the, the example of that I would point to is actually North Korea. So North Korea has acquired nuclear weapons, but they're treated as a pariah state. And we can hold up North Korea as an example to the world and say, if you really want to go down this path, here is what will happen to you. Here are all the sanctions. Here's how you will be treated. And you're almost using them as a case study and make an example out of them. And if we really care about nonproliferation, we should be sending that message Um, to any country that considers it. So again, I think it's an important symbol to listen to, but we shouldn't, you know, the sky isn't falling just yet.
0: Is it fair to say that there may be fewer people on this side of the Atlantic who are aware that this conversation actually has some traction in Europe? Probably. Whenever I talk about it
1: over here in Washington... Because I'm stunned. It it, it is stunning to some extent. As I said, I don't think it's that realistic. It's more... um, you know, it's more the Europeans saying, We're here. We're, this is really serious. We need you to listen to us. And that's what I think we need to engage with, which is okay, let's talk seriously about what are your concerns with America's security assurances? What are your concerns about the health of NATO? Um, but I think it's also, we should use this as an opportunity. For those countries, I mean, Germany is such a strong anti-nuclear movement, as you said just now, but then they're also the ones talking about this. This is a great opportunity to bring them into discussions within the NPT and talking about how can we make the global nuclear order healthier? How can we make it stronger? And how can we include your views in that? But that involves a level of engagement that I think it's hard for the U.S. to do right now.
0: And still, if people are talking about it, shouldn't somebody be concerned that, and actually, looking at the, what the risk would be should this go further than just talk?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, just to clarify, you know, NATO is already a nuclear alliance, as you know. Right. Um, US, the US has four deployed nuclear weapons and five basing nations. Um, uh, and so, to some extent, NATO already has this nuclear role. And it, that's also part of the global nuclear order. And if we, I think that's why it's so important to maintain NATO's current nuclear role and nuclear function. Not a new, not not
0: the new new that you just expressed that
1: people are talking about. Exactly, because that's just going to, that's going to open up so many new dynamics and potential instabilities. Um, You know, the idea of Germany and France sharing a nuclear deterrent. I mean, that was inconceivable 100 or even 50 years ago. Um, how stable is such a relationship given historical trends? Um, it just, and then you get questions about nuclear security and nuclear burden sharing. And those are just, each one of those is so complex. Um, I'm not saying that we should just accept the status quo because all the alternatives are too difficult to to contemplate. But the current situation, it is relatively stable. And in an era of this much uncertainty, maybe we should be strengthening sources of stability. How do
0: you rebuild trust that's lost or trust that's questioned? Maybe it's not completely lost. Maybe there are just questions about the relationships these days.
1: Yeah. um, I, I had said I would make one academic point. I'm going to make one more, and then I'll really try to stop. Um, academic but, points are fine. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll try not to talk about epistemologies and ontologies then. Um, but So I gave my definition of trust. But whenever we say trust, we should say trust to do what? You don't trust everybody the same. Um, I, you know I trust my mother. Do I trust my mother to co-author a paper with me? You know, sorry, mom, but no. Um, Do I trust, uh, you know, one of my colleagues at King's? Absolutely. And so you have to talk about trust to do what? So when we talk about rebuilding trust in the global nuclear order, I think we really need to think about what do we want that trust to do for us? And I would say we want trust that states will not proliferate. So that means rebuilding trust within the NPT. We want a future for US-Russia arms control as possessors of the two largest nuclear arsenals. So we, as the US, have to rebuild trust with Russia. And Russia has to reciprocate. That's an important point. Um, but it, we also have to be the ones willing to engage in that. And so how you do that, it depends on what you want to get out of it. Um, I do think you know, the history of trust building often points to the role of individuals and people. Um, And so I think to some extent it is about having the right people in the room and having political will, but it's also realizing that we do have shared interests, like it's in both the U.S. and Russia's interest to continue with arms control. It's um, coming to realize that and finding ways forward.
0: Before we uh, continue down the Russia vein, I just want to follow up quickly on um, remedying the trust issues. Is the ball in the U.S.'s court to make the first move or is this something that, that NATO and Europe will have to push for? Uh, I think it's
1: in both sides. The, the, you know, it's almost like it's not I don't think it's as simple as who's going to go first in this one. One example I would point to is um, at the recent NPT preparatory committee meeting, the U.S. rolled out a new kind of policy, which was um, creating the conditions-based approach to nuclear disarmament. And the idea of this policy is let's have a broader dialogue about disarmament. Let's go forward in a positive spirit. Let's rebuild trust amongst each other within the NPT. You can bring initiatives to the table. We'll bring initiatives to the table. But let's create that dialogue space. Now, is that something that – did the U.S. start that or is it – or did they start it because their allies encouraged them to do it? And so it's almost hard to say that it comes down to one person starting things. I think it's more acknowledging those mutual interests and coming up with ideas that you know pe- that can capitalize on them.
0: Let me remind you, you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk. We're talking about trust and the global nuclear order with Dr. Heather Williams, Defense Studies Lecturer at King's College London in the Center for Science and Security Studies. Follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk, and you can follow Heather at... Heather Willie, and that's H E A T H E R W I L L Y. And I know you're very prolific on Twitter. I follow you.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> sometimes I am. Um, sometimes I need a little Twitter break. It's, <laughs> it's healthy, I think.
0: I think a Twitter break is healthy for everyone, as long as you follow us, and then you can check in and out. Yes, that's a that's a good thing. Uh, you mentioned Russia, and right now, I guess it's fair to say there's a almost crisis of trust between the U.S. and Russia on on most things. The intelligence community has said that Russia uh, tried to interfere with the 2016 election and uh, that there are uh, efforts to attack U.S. democratic institutions. Mm. Uh, but you mentioned the, the, the nuclear treaties. And I'm just curious, how on earth do you square that circle?
1: Uh- if you can get anyone to give you the answer to that, then let's take that straightforward to U.S. <laughs> policy. Um, so I think with this one, we can look at the U.S. sources of distrust, but it goes back to what I said before about thinking about our allies' perspective. We have to also just think of the Russian perspective here. I'm not saying I agree with it. But so from the U.S. perspective, Russia has violated a number of arms control agreements, and... Um, you know, particularly the INF Treaty, it doesn't seem particularly interested in engaging in dialogue to restore the INF Treaty. Um, it's intervened in our elections, what happened in Ukraine, um, nuclear saber rattling against NATO allies. So, from the U.S. perspective, there, these are major trust challenges. From the Russian perspective, though, the United States withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002. They also allege that the United States has been violating the INF Treaty. They also say that they've wanted to engage with us in dialogue and we have refused. Um, You know, they also say NATO expansion. They, uh, They have their laundry list as well for reasons of why they shouldn't trust the U.S. Some of them... I think if you spend time talking to Russians, you can actually see where they're coming from. This isn't just platitudes or political rhetoric. There is a deep feeling um, that, for many Russians, they have a deep feeling that they were taken advantage of. And that at the end of the Cold War, these treaties were signed when Russia was at its weakest, and that we, the United States, took advantage of that. We kicked them when they were down. And they will not be taken advantage of like that again. It's somewhat an emotional response, but if we're serious about rebuilding trust and going forward, I, you know, I think we just have to see it from that perspective. The way you go forward, I think it is, as I keep saying, finding those areas of shared interests. It is in both sides' interest, for example, to extend the New START Treaty, which is due to expire in 2021, but it has an option of a five-year extension. Um, I think both sides, um, they, both of us need arms control. For different reasons and for perhaps different levels of need, so to speak. Um, But the important thing is really getting back to dialogue on that. Um, And so I I, I don't have the the silver bullet on this one. Um, When I get it, I'll come back
0: on. (laughs) And we'd be most pleased to have you. While we're in the role of playing devil's advocate, Mm. uh, there are some who would say that the U.S. thought process toward Russia, the trust but verify that you mentioned earlier, would signal that we don't really trust them at all, uh, that that's why former President Reagan said trust but verify, because we really don't. Uh, and how does how does that play with the Russians? Yeah, this is one of the most common criticisms of the
1: trust arguments and for arms control to some extent. Um, but I actually think Trust is unavoidable in arms control, uh, or at least the type of arms control that we're talking about with Russia. I mean, So think about it. Under these treaties, you have um, numerous inspections a year. Under New START, there's 18 on-site inspections a year. Americans go into Russia and conduct inspections on their most secret facilities into their you know, the sacred cows of the Russian military. And the Russians get to do the same to us. We show them things that we don't even talk about with our publics. And while you can build into the treaty all sorts of ways to avoid spying and to avoid cheating, there is no 100% verification. So no matter what, you are to some extent placing, you are making yourself vulnerable to that other side. How do the Russians see this? The Russians really don't like verification activities. We usually ask for more of it than they do. However, if the Russians want arms control, we always make it very clear it's going to have to have these verification provisions. It might not get as much as we want, but that's what the negotiation process is for. So I think with Russia, to some extent, it's about finding, identifying what do they really want? Um, Are there issues that we're both willing to engage on? There have been some ongoing strategic stability talks uh, so there's possible venues for moving forward, but it really is about the underlying trust. I just don't see it there right now. So I'm pretty pessimistic for the short term.
0: And since there's the divide within the U.S. government, the administration has said they want to pursue um, better relations with Russia, and there are members on the Hill and other members within the government that are, are reluctant or not wanting to do that because of the issue with the 2016 election and the allegations about the interference in democratic institutions. Uh, so, is it, are we kind of at a in a catch-22 or at a stalemate? I think we're if we're not in a stalemate, we're pretty
1: close to one. I actually think the bigger challenge for arms control is is the INF treaty. Um, until we can resolve um, questions questions of compliance with INF, it's hard to imagine Congress ratifying a new arms control agreement with Russia. And just for folks who may not know what the INF treaty, is can you give us a definition? Uh, it's a 1987 agreement, uh, uh, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which prohibits uh, nuclear forces with range between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. And it had um, it was, I mean, it was part of a suite of arms control agreements at the end of the Cold War. Um, the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, um, Treaty, the START Treaty, um, and for the most part, it's been pointed to is oh this is a great success in arms control um, but in the maybe in late 2000s early 2000s mid-2000s Russia started expressing some doubts about whether or not they wanted to stay in this um, and then in July 2014 the US State Department released a report saying Russia is in violation of this treaty um, which Russia has always they deny or they try to evade the question um, I, I would just add one point onto this sitting in Europe You know, Europeans are really nervous about the state of the INF Treaty, because if you look at those ranges, that's Europe. Uh, Those are a lot of NATO members. And so I think it's frustrating for a lot of them that this dispute is happening and these discussions are happening between the U.S. and Russia, and they can't be part of it when they're the ones most affected. And they're thinking about what is the future of nuclear stability in Europe look like without arms control? That's really scary for a lot of Europeans, and so that's just another, I think, reason that we need to be serious about going forward with arms control. For, if anything, for the
0: for our allies. And as we're uh, wrapping up here, I have a question about the nuclear ban treaty, and how is it related to issues of trust? And again, if you could just give a, a brief summary of exactly what it is, and explain how it's related or tied into. All of these issues of trust that we've talked about.
1: Yeah, the, the Ban Treaty is kind of the most recent manifestation of distrust in the global nuclear order. It's a treaty that opened for signature in September 2017, um, and it was concluded um, by over 100 states in the UN. It has 14 members right now. Um, the United States, all other nuclear possessors um, haven't joined. No NATO members have joined. Um, And what the treaty does, it it really, it prohibits everything. It prohibits um, possession, assistance, deployment. Um, So kind of, it's, the thing is, it's a different type. It's hard to explain because it's different from other treaties that we think about. It's really about changing the norm. It's about changing the way that we talk about nuclear weapons. And what its goal is, is to create bottom-up pressure on governments to change their nuclear doctrines, to abandon nuclear weapons. This isn't a top-down treaty that presidents have signed on to. This is something that has a grassroots movement. But how it fits into trust questions, it's... um, So dozens, if not over 100 states, are frustrated with lack of progress towards disarmament within the NPT. And they feel really disenfranchised and like their voices just aren't being heard. And so they said, do you know what? We've tried within the NPT to get you, the nuclear weapon states, to do more. And you're just not listening to us. And we feel like you don't take us seriously. So we're going to go do something different. And we're going to go create this ban treaty, which is what they did. And to some extent, I'd say they've been successful. We're talking about nuclear weapons differently. We talk about nuclear ethics which, I mean, I wasn't really trained in nuclear ethics. And so I think there are these positive benefits to it. However, the treaty, it, it really, you know, it doesn't readily align with the NPT. It doesn't readily fit into the global nuclear order. And what it's really doing is it's targeting NATO states and trying to get NATO to change its nuclear doctrine. And this comes at a time when NATO is under significant pressure from Russia. Um, So many NATO members want to see a stronger nuclear deterrent. And then you have this ban treaty coming in and trying to change that. And so what I think is a real problem with the ban treaty, it doesn't take into account security context. It doesn't acknowledge state security concerns and why they might rely on nuclear weapons. So for example, how can you tell the Indians, you don't need nuclear weapons for your security? I mean, in, India will have a pretty strong view on that. Or how do you tell the Poles, do you know what? You don't really need a nuclear deterrent. You're going to be fine without it. The, the, Poland's history with Russia would suggest otherwise. And so because the Ban Treaty doesn't take into account those security factors, uh, I see it as
0: more destabilizing the global nuclear order than contributing to it at this time. And wouldn't it also be pretty hard to get nuclear powers to actually sign on to a treaty like this? Well, yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, they would have to uh, either give up their nuclear weapons beforehand or make a commitment to do so, and the conditions just don't exist right now. Um, and so, the U.S. policy of creating conditions um, is meant to be kind of a step towards in toward the longer term goal of nuclear disarmament. But for now, um, the ban treaty, um, you know, it kind of it kind of goes against
0: state security interests. Well, this is a fascinating topic, and I'm sure there's more to come. Dr. Heather Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Remember to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk, and we're at Smart Women, and you can follow Heather at Heather Willie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.